the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a scintilla of satisfaction in a scurrilous world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, co-founder of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find, gosh, 1,200, over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. And I'm Nurse Amy. Actually, I'm Amy Alton, and I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of quality medical kits, some one of a kind, at store.doomandbloom.net. Not to mention the hostess with the most is so awesome that even ducks have a high opinion of her, even if she doesn't have any bread. Now listen, on this show, you're going to get the conventional wisdom and the unconventional medical wisdom as well. That's what it takes maybe sometimes for your family to get medically prepared for tough times. But before we start, you got to listen to this. Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Please. That's right. Ignore us. Nothing to see here. But what happens if things go south? And I don't mean Cuba. Are you ready if the you-know-what hits the fan? Listen to us and you'll take another step on the road to preparedness. You know, I mentioned in a recent show that the family medic won't have lab tests and fancy diagnostic imaging like MRIs and CT scans to help with medical issues if some disaster throws us off the grid. You, medic, will have to go by physical signs and symptoms just like they did in the 19th century, which is just about where you'll be thrown back to medically. In a recent show, I used thyroid problems as an example. These days, you're going to get a lot of studies and blood tests, the sonogram, stuff like that, to look for nodules and other kinds of thyroid problems. Now, you're not going to have that, but you will have to work somehow. So work empirically. Now, what do I mean by empirical? Like the evil empire <laughs> in Star Wars? No, 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 no. Empirical therapy is medical treatment based on experience, signs and symptoms, and other information that essentially gives you the basis for an educated guess in the absence of complete or perfect information. Perfect information would be knowing exactly which species of bacteria or virus caused a specific infection and what antibiotics, let's say, if it's a bacteria, would be sensitive to it. In other words, having unlimited technology at your disposal. Now that leads you to a definitive answer as to exactly what's going on. That's great. It leads to definitive treatment. That's a luxury, though, you have when modern medicine is around. And even then, sometimes you might be wrong. Going empirically without a definitive diagnosis is a terrible way to have to treat medical illness, but it's going to be all you have if some disaster knocks you off the grid. It's all your ancestors had back then, and you know what? The human race still exists, so your people might survive actually having you as a medic after all. (laughs) It's not not such such a miracle. It can happen. (laughs) That's right. So let's talk about thyroid problems. You might think that a medic knowing about thyroid issues isn't really survival-ish type medicine, but it's actually more survival medicine than stopping hemorrhage, splinting a sprain, or other stuff that bushcrafters really want to know about. That's first aid, or even maybe wilderness first aid, I'll admit that. But these topics assume you've got a way to pass the victim off to a higher medical resource. Someone's coming in. That's right. To rescue you and take you away. They might not be right in hand, they might be miles away, but there's a possibility they can one day get to modern medical care. Now, if you're really concerned about some long-term event that could take society to the brink, well, the medic's going to have to learn about chronic illness. 
We'll have to learn about infections. Nursing care as well. Very, very important. Yeah, we're going to talk about that next week. That's right. As well as pre-hospital trauma care, which is a basic first aid. There is no pre-hospital anything, however, in survival because there won't be a hospital. So think about what would have happened, let's say, if COVID-19 had a 5 or 10% death rate. Do you think there would have been a functioning medical infrastructure? I doubt it. So therefore, you know, things like high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, people are going to be coming to you with problems like this in survival settings, and you better have a plan of action. And don't forget tooth decay and other dental problems. So that's another entire show or two that we're going to be doing. Oh, it'll be fun to show the extractors. That's right. Yep. (laughs) So I hope you have a better idea of what it's going to take to be an effective medic in survival settings. It's a hard reality, but it's a reality. Okay, back to the thyroid. The thyroid gland is a small butterfly-shaped organ that's located in front of the neck below the Adam's apple. Everybody has an Adam's apple. It's just more prominent in men. Or let's say, I'm not sure if you can say that women have Adam's apples. They don't have Adam's apples, but they do have a cricoid cartilage, which is indeed what the Adam's apple is. It's much more prominent in men, but if you feel the neck, you would be able to tell. The thyroid itself is found at the level of the windpipe also known as the trachea. Now, when you apply a thumb and forefinger lightly to the area or use two hands from behind the patient. Okay. Let's actually do a little show and tell. This is how you examine a thyroid. I'm the patient. (laughs) But she's doing the right thing, actually. She's using... (laughs) I was choking you. That wasn't the right thing. (laughs) She's using the fingers of two hands to go between my suprasternal notch, this top of the breastbone here and below my my adam's apple or my cricoid cartilage right in the middle and she's feeling now she but not too hard don't push too hard no this is a gentle sort of you're up against the skin you're not really pressing in too much you are in a little bit but you're not trying to squeeze in there you want to be very gentle with your touch now feeling when you're doing an exam is known as palpation so if you're palpating this area and you ask the patient to swallow could you please swallow sir yeah i'm swallowing you'll notice that the thyroid will move up and down right that's right it moves up and down or you could actually take a sip of water and it will move up and down of course you're talking is difficult because everything's vibrating i felt it there there you go yep and so that's one way that you can evaluate for things like nodules and stuff indeed i do have a nodule it just happens to be very small but it is not affecting the thyroid function. Let's talk about the thyroid function. Now, why is the thyroid gland so important? It's tiny. The thyroid gland produces hormones that act as chemical messengers to regulate your metabolism and control lots of vital functions in your body. The thyroid gland maintains a hormonal balance between itself and two other organs, the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus. These are both found near the base of the brain, and simple physical exam really just can't reach them. When this balance is disturbed, however, we experience a dysfunction in the thyroid and its production of thyroid hormone. Usually this involves the production of either too little or too much hormone. These malfunctions can occur in anyone, but they're more commonly seen in women. Now, let me tell you a little bit about a real third world thyroid disease that you might see in survival settings, and that is goiter, an issue that might be common in survival settings. A goiter is a lump that represents, well, a sometimes really striking in appearance enlargement of the thyroid gland. This little tiny thing is about the size of a butterfly, and indeed, 
it is really big in people, or it can get really big in people that have goiters. It's a result of a deficiency of iodine in the body, and one of the reasons why common table salt is now iodized. Right. So before iodide was actually added to salt, goiter was much more common in developed countries than it is today. According to the National Institute of Health, goiter had become so common in the 1920s, just 100 years ago, that places like the Great Lakes, the Appalachians, and the northwestern regions of our country were actually nicknamed the goiter belt. So pretty amazing that that just happened 100 years ago. There were yeah. people, in Americans with a bunch of goiters, roaming around parts of the country. Now, potassium iodide tablets, like you have for nuclear reactor uh, meltdowns or, or atomic bombs, uh, ThyroSafe is right, the brand that we right. have on, on our store, right. may be a treatment uh, option for goiter if no other source of iodine is available. In nature, though, and which is always better to find your Supplements, supplements, vitamins, nutrition, right from in, food. In, right from Much food, better. you can find it in kelp, oysters, shrimp, cod, haddock, all sorts of fish, and and interestingly enough, dairy products. These are a much better idea to get your nutrients from. Yep. The things that you want to know, what's going on with iodine allergies and seafood allergies? Unfortunate use of iodines, while a known treatment, can actually worsen certain conditions and even thyroid conditions in some cases. Now, this is rare, luckily, and it's used, and it happens when potassium iodide is used in large amounts or for a long period of time. So... You might have had a CAT scan or some kind of test. Radiological study. Right, that involved the use of iodine contrast dye. And interestingly enough, you may have been asked by, let's say, uh, a interventional cardiologist if you're having a cardiac catheterization right. or, or some other CAT scan that has sure. involved contrast, the radiologist might ask you if you were allergic to seafood or right. allergic to shellfish. Right. The funny thing about that is that that's something that doctors do for almost essentially no reason. <laughs> there's a 3% chance that you're allergic to iodine, and there's a 3% chance that you're allergic to iodine contrast dye, whether or not you claim to be allergic to shellfish or not. Now, the funny thing about shellfish, it's not the iodine that actually causes the allergy. It's actually two proteins known as parvalbumin and tropomyosin. That is actually what causes the seafood allergy in most cases. These proteins, not the actual iodine. As a matter of fact, iodine is not now considered a specific allergen, although iodine contrast dye is a different creature altogether, and you can indeed have, like I said, a 3% chance that you're allergic to iodine contrast dye. So it is sort of interesting, but, but despite that, and despite knowing this information, still... 65% of radiologists and 89% of cardiologists will ask about seafood or shellfish allergies prior to administering iodine contrast dye for CAT scans and things like that. And 35% and 50% respectively between radiologists and cardiologists stated that they would withhold contrast media and re recommend uh, steroids or just stopping the procedure altogether for people that claim seafood or shellfish allergy. And that was in uh, the Journal of Hospital Medicine, in an interesting series they have that I'll probably bring up again in the future on other topics. This is great. I love the title of this. Called Things We Do for No Reason. 
and the, we being doctors. Yes, and the reason you guys do them is because when you were in school, your professors told you, you always do this, and they beat it into your heads, and so it's stuck there, and despite learning now that 3% of all population, seafood allergy or not, has an allergic reaction to the contrast dye, they still ask the question, and they still withhold it, and they still make them go have something special done because of it. It's and just, even though the shellfish allergy is actually due to proteins in the fish, not, not due to the not iodine. Not the iodine, exactly. So, interesting, and I'm sure you'll Crazy. find a, a doctor somewhere that's going to disagree with me, but it's right there. And statistics are public, statistics. Published <laughs> in respected journals. There you go. All right, well, anyhow. So what about lumps? Lumps on the thyroid. <laughs> they can also develop, besides being a goiter, they can also develop for reasons that aren't associated with an iodine deficiency. They could exist without causing any symptoms whatsoever. I have, a thi- I have no symptoms of thyroid problems, but I have a nodule in my thyroid. Or they, can e- they could disturb thyroid hormone levels. It could present, uh, a lump, the lump that is, could present as a cyst, which is a mass filled with fluid, or a nodule. When I mention nodule, I mean a solid mass. I have a solid mass in my thyroid that luckily isn't doing anything. Sometimes they call that a cold nodule. Uh, sometimes cold nodules could be cancerous, though, so they have to be watched. And I have to make sure that mine doesn't grow beyond a certain size. You can barely feel it, in my case, right? Right. There. All right. Although, so, I, yours is bigger than mine. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, there Not you go. Not by much, but well, it is. But uh, that's because I have a nodule there. In rare cases, it could represent a cancer, and it does have to be followed. Now, fortunately, thyroid cancer is relatively uncommon. It actually grows very slowly, even in the elderly, unless there's been exposure to radiation. Some thyroid tumors, however, are, are hot, and they produce a lot of thyroid hormone. That causes a condition known as hyperthyroid, the excessive production of thyroid hormone, known as hyperthyroidism. And it usually comes on between the ages of about 20 and 50, but the diagnosis is usually made a lot later when people start really experiencing a lot of symptoms. Now, I said before that figuring out that the thyroid is malfunctioning is going to depend normally in normal times on certain blood tests, sometimes a scan of the gland, but that's not an option in a collapse. So it's important to learn what a person with elevated thyroid levels looks like. So some common signs and symptoms of this condition in adults are insomnia, hand tremors, nervousness, feeling excessively hot in normal or even cold temperatures. Notice that this is all sort of excessively high metabolism kind of stuff. There's a condition called Graves' disease in which the eyes appear to be bulging out or sort of staring. These people have frequent bowel movements, speedy, you know, their, their intestines are move, working back. Everything's along. right. Moving they, along. And despite that, they're losing weight despite a normal or even an increased appetite. They have, oftentimes have an increased appetite. They sweat a lot. They may have periods that are off, you know, they're scant or they cease altogether. Well, once you mess up hormones, that usually, and thyroid is a hormone, it sort of of cascades and it starts affecting everything else. So there's never just one thing that goes wrong with you. Um, It usually affects a whole bunch of other things in your body. Right, hence all these all these symptoms, you know, different symptoms that yeah, people are getting. Yeah. And if the, if you're really old and you have this condition, you might have muscle weakness, chest pain, shortness of breath, things like that. If you're really young, you might have some problems uh, developing puberty, you might have some growth issues, right. things like that. Poorly controlled hyperthyroidism can lead to a condition known as thyroid storm, in which very high levels of hormone cause major effects on the heart and the brain. 
all the above symptoms can combine with an elevated heart rate, fever, blood pressure, all sorts of irregularities to actually endanger the patient's life. To treat hyperthyroidism, it involves medications that block hormone production. If you are, you're aware of a member of your group that happens to have hyperthyroidism, these drugs, which their doctor probably has them for the patient, they should consider stockpiling them if at all possible. They're going to be hard to find if modern medical care is no longer available. Substances such as I-131, also known as radioiodine, have been used to actually destroy an overactive thyroid. As you can imagine, this results in the patient producing no thyroid hormone at all and winding up needing an outside source for it. Uh, I-131 treatment, by the way, is useful in severe hyperthyroidism, but also is something else that's unlikely to be available off the grid. Unless you happen to be under a cloud of fallout from a nuclear explosion, then you'll get as much radioiodine as you can handle. Hopefully that will never, (laughs) ever, ever happen. That's right. However, mm-hmm. dietary restriction of nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, and other substances that alter metabolism will also help control high thyroid levels. That's vitamin right. C and vitamin B12 are thought to have a beneficial effect on those with this condition, as does L-carnitine, which is not an easy word to say. <laughs> yeah, L-carnitine, uh, we do. We yeah. actually take that. L-carnitine may even lower thyroid levels without damaging the gland, which is always a good thing. If you can have something, a supplement to take without having to hurt yourself or remove a part of your body. Foods that are thought to depress the production of thyroid hormone also include cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli. We grow some of these. Brussels sprouts and spinach. Yum. Love spinach. In addition, foods high in antioxidants are thought to reduce free radicals that might be involved in hyperthyroidism. And these include delicious foods again, blueberries, cherries, tomatoes, squash, and bell peppers, among others. Lots of great antioxidants there. Yum. Let's talk about hypothyroidism. They're more commonly seen than hyperthyroidism. This is much, much, much more commonly seen than that. Hypothyroidism is the failure to produce enough thyroid hormone. Now, a common cause of it is the misfiring of the immune system. Now, when this happens, the body actually targets the thyroid in an autoimmune reaction. The most commonly seen signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism in adults are, as you can imagine, the opposite of hyperthyroidism. And they involve things like a sort of a slowing down of metabolism. You're fatigued a lot instead of nervous. Your intolerance to cold increases instead of being intolerant to hot. Uh, You have constipation instead of diarrhea. You have uh, a poor appetite instead of an increased appetite. You gain weight instead of lose weight like people do when they have hyperthyroidism. People with hypothyroidism also have some effects that on the skin, uh, things like uh, dry skin, hair loss, uh, their voice changes, they become hoarse, and these people wind up having depression because they're physically changing for the worse, and they can actually see it. If you take a look at a picture of somebody one, one year and then the next year, they sometimes are pretty strikingly different in the way they look. Let's see, menstrual irregularities and and growth issues can also occur, just like they can with hyperthyroidism. And if you ignore this and don't treat with thyroid hormone, they wind up getting a lot worse with regards to their vocal changes, their hair loss, their skin, and they start swelling up a lot as well. 
Now, it should be noted that untreated hypothyroidism in a pregnant woman actually causes birth defects in the baby. There's actually an entire syndrome that a baby has that identifies it, the mother as have, having, have had hypothyroidism during, during the pregnancy. pregnancy right. Now, the treatment of this condition is based on the oral replacement of the missing hormone, which is called thyroxine. These drugs come in a variety of dosages, it's, I mean, really tiny increments, and it's important to determine exactly the right dosage. For that, a physician should evaluate and test your group member now in normal times while modern medical care is still available to figure out what is the perfect level. The lowest dose that will maintain normal thyroid levels is what they need. Too much may cause hyperthyroidism. Once you have determined the right dosage, you may consider in normal times asking a physician for additional supplies or even a prescription for a higher dose. This might allow you to use, say, half of the pill in the present and stockpile the other half for the uncertain future. Now, only do this if you know them very well and you intend to follow your physician's advice as to what the proper dose actually is. There's no benefit but significant risk to taking more thyroid replacement than you should. By the way, good luck finding a sympathetic physician. Most will consider this request absolutely unethical in a normal time. And in normal <laughs> times, I don't know if you can really argue with that. Uh, besides standard thyroid medications such as Synthroid and Levothyroid, there are a number of other remedies that may have a beneficial effect on hypothyroidism. A number of thyroid extracts are available, which consist of desiccated and powdered pig or cow thyroid gland. The amount of thyroid hormone in these extracts may be variable. Therefore, the medical establishment recommends against their use. Uh, in the absence of modern medications, however, it's probably better than nothing. Now, one strategy that might help you decide what natural supplement may be right for you is to ask your physician to monitor your thyroid levels for two to four weeks or so while you try it out. If your thyroid levels drop like a stone on the supplement, well, it probably has little or no effect and you should research other options. If your thyroid levels remain normal on the alternative, well, you might continue monitoring long-term to see whether the product might be worthwhile to stockpile. From a dietary standpoint, again, we're going to go back to dietary, uh, this is the foods you should avoid. The good things that were for the hyperthyroidism are not good for the hypothyroidism. Exactly right. Alright, so avoid these. Cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, spinach, and cabbage. Sound familiar? Yep. <laughs> A number of natural supplements such as Thyromine or Thyrovance are commercially available. And these are, again, unregulated as to what their exact effects are going to be on hypothyroidism. They're combinations of various herbs that are touted as beneficial for both low and high thyroid conditions. Your experience may vary. That's a disclaimer. Yes. Your experience may vary. <laughs> Some believe that selenium and vitamin B supplements uh, may help, so it can't hurt. Why not? I agree. I mean, use all the tools in the woodshed. Absolutely. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for watching and listening to the Me? Survival Medicine Podcast. With Joe Alden. Slash videocast. <laughs> That's right. With Joe Alden and Amy Alton. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Hey, you may know our friend Jack Spierko, the granddaddy of all survival podcasters, and we're glad to be part of his expert council where we answer questions from listeners usually around once a week. This question is about high blood pressure, and it fits in nicely with our podcast on common chronic illnesses like thyroid disease, that the survival medic will have to deal with. 
Here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, author of books like The Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, as well as designer of an entire line of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Eric, who writes, Are home-style blood pressure cuffs reliable for use, and is there a certain maker you would recommend? At what level should I really be concerned about my blood pressure? Thanks, Eric. Eric, let's start by talking a little bit about blood pressure, also known as hypertension. It's one of the most common medical conditions that the survival medic is going to see in good times or bad times. The blood pressure is a measure of blood flow pushing against the walls of the arteries in your body. In older people and the obese, those walls become less elastic and more force is required to push blood through and maintain your circulation and therefore oxygen supply. This additional stress can lead over time to heart attacks, heart failure, and even stroke. Many millions of adults in the U.S. have hypertension, which often lacks any signs and symptoms at all. Hence, it's sometimes called a silent killer. A blood pressure is measured by systolic and diastolic pressures. Systolic refers to the blood pressure when the heart beats, and diastolic refers to the blood pressure when the heart is at rest between beats. Blood pressure readings are written as systolic over diastolic. For example, systolic pressure 120 over 80 diastolic pressure. You'll see it written as 120 forward slash 80. Although exercise is generally good to keep blood pressure within normal range, stress and extreme exertion associated with activities of daily survival can raise blood pressure in the short term and cause problems in those who have chronically high readings. Lack of blood pressure medications off the grid may cause complications in people who were previously under good control. This is why you should always encourage people to go early to fill their prescriptions and accumulate a stockpile if they can. If given a choice between a 90-day supply versus a 30-day supply, always pick 90. Until 2017, a person was not considered hypertensive until their blood pressure was 140 over 90 or higher. Since then, the American Heart Association standard has become much stricter, with 120 over 80 or less being considered normal, 120 to 30 over 80 or less being considered elevated, and 130 over 80 the upper acceptable limit. As a result, more than 40% of the American population are now in the elevated range or worse. Stage 1 hypertension is the systolic of 130 to 139 and diastolic between 80 and 89, but less than 140 over 90. Stage 2 hypertension a systolic of 140 or higher, and diastolic 90 or higher. Extremely high blood pressures are considered stroke country, called hypertensive crisis in medical speak, and those with pressures of 180 over 120, for example, will have symptoms which you might see at the beginning of a stroke. Severe chest pain, severe headache accompanied by confusion or blurred vision, nausea and vomiting, severe anxiety, shortness of breath, and even seizures. A single blood pressure measurement higher than normal, however, is not necessarily an indication of a problem. Your doctor will want to see multiple, at least three, blood pressure measurements over several days or weeks before making a diagnosis of high blood pressure. Most providers will counsel proper nutrition and exercise as a first strategy for control. If you're obese, a weight loss program may indeed take a mild to moderate case of hypertension and return readings to close to normal. I go up and down by a few pounds throughout the year, and my pressures go up when I'm heavier and down when I'm lighter. If your blood pressure readings remain consistently outside the normal range, however, you may require a medication and a normal time should be checked out by a medical professional. 
To answer your question, Eric, Homestyle cuffs do vary in their reliability. You should know how to take a blood pressure reading manually and have a manual cuff and stethoscope, as well as have the digital version. The Omron cuffs, O-M-R-O-N, that we have at our house, they seem to match our manual readings, which is how we gauge accuracy. You can find them at Walmart. Others that are considered reliable are Welch Allen and Healthmate brands. Remember that the size of the cuff in both automatic and manual brands is important. If you've got big arms, you need a bigger cuff to get an accurate reading. Hey, if you have questions you'd like us to answer on the podcast or maybe topics to discuss, feel free to send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com and we'll see if we can get them on in a future show. Thanks. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.